Everybody said amen, and thank you, Jill, yes. I'd clap, but I can't. It wouldn't, just wouldn't work. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. I was ready for more. I'm always ready for more. More music. But the choir today is singing over at one of the nursing homes, and so we are glad that they're going to share their ministry with others, and we thank them for this morning's uh, music, music that they've shared with us as well. Let me take you today back into the book of Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 20 through 25. I'm also going to add 31 to 35 to this. As we listen to Jane's testimony this morning, it honestly made me think about the book of Mark because you see incredible things happen as Jesus uh, engaged uh, ministry with his disciples and how there were spiritual forces that would oppose them. But Jesus always triumphed over them. I think in our own day, we give the devil way more than he's due. He's a defeated enemy. And the very name of Jesus is, is, is just what the scripture says it is. It's the name above all names. There's tremendous power in that name especially in the life of a believer who, who is possessed by Christ's Holy Spirit. And as we, as we move forward in, in faith and in ministry, the devils are afraid of us. They're, they're intimidated, not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. And we have Jesus Christ living within us if we are followers of him, believers in Christ. Let's look at this text today, and then we're going to spend actually a couple of weeks in this, because as I cover this briefly today, I'm going to cover a part of it that deals with rejection. Very important theme. You know, Jesus knew rejection more than any of us ever will, more than any of us ever will encounter. He was rejected by, at times, his friends. His own disciples forsook him and fled in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. They were afraid for their lives. So even his closest associates who'd been with him for three years forsook him. His family rejected him along the way at, at certain points because they didn't understand his ministry and who he really was. He was rejected by the relig religious leaders almost from the get-go, almost from the beginning of his earthly ministry. But perhaps the harshest rejection that he ever could have faced was, the, was what he heard from his father, what he sensed from his father when the father looked away from Jesus as he hung on the cross for us. And he declared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He faced rejection that we can't fathom, a unity that he had with the father from eternity. He was willing to, to, to let go of for that short amount of time. And he sensed it. He felt it deep in his spirit and was anguished as he faced the rejection of his own father as, as God couldn't look at the sin upon his son. He faced the rejection of his father so you and I would never have to. Talk about knowing rejection. Talk about facing rejection. So our message title is How to Deal with Rejection. And that's really the context. Uh, rejection, that word, is the context, the atmosphere even, of the passage in front of us here today. So you're probably ahead of me in reading it already, which is okay. Pa uh, past uh, Sunday, Pastor Barry looked at the verses just above this. You had the calling of the disciples, and so they're identified for us. Then at verse 20, it says that Jesus went home. Where is the home here? From the context, we believe it's Capernaum, the capital, if you will, of his Galilean ministry. Remember, in his three-year ministry on earth, Two-thirds of that whole ministry activity took place in the Galilee region. 
Capernaum or Capernaum or Capernaum, if you want to use a modern uh, saying how they pronounce it today, still there, of course, on the north shores of the Galilee, that was his headquarters. That's where Peter's house, mother's house was. That's where there was a lot, of, uh, a lot going on. And so after the identifying of the disciples, verse 20, he went home, Capernaum, and the crowd gathered again. He's back. This miracle worker's back. There's one that's been delivering people from, from illness and from the devils. He's back. There's a crowd. His reputation has preceded him. The crowd is there because it says, so that they could not even eat. Talk about a crowd. Talk about uh, pressure upon Jesus and the disciples. But here's the misunderstanding that also accompanies the ministry of Jesus. Verse 21, we wish it was a happy occasion. But verse 21, it says, and when his family, oh, my Bible just disappeared. Sorry, there it is. And when his, oh, don't do that to me. I thought it took it in a whole new, new place here. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Remember, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, not so far away from Capernaum. And there was a lot of confusion among his brothers, uh, among associates. The Greek word that we get to this from, where it says it's sometimes translated family, it means associates. It means those closest to him. So the translators are inferring it means his family. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So opposition from his closest family, verse 22. And then the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Such controversy surrounding our Lord. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, he began to challenge them. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. What an insult they had given to him to say, you're doing the works you're doing by the power of the devil. And if Satan has risen up against himself, verse 26, and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus said at verse 27, but no man can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Next week I'm going to focus a bit on what is the unforgivable sin. That's a concern to many people. This passage is interfacing with that subject, and I'm not going to explore it too much today. Uh, we'll do that next week as we look at verses 28, 29, 30. Let's just finish the, this little section going down to verse 31. And his mothers and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called him, his earthly family, his family of origin. Verse 32, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, this is quite an audacious statement because family in that culture was paramount. It was everything. And so some would have interpreted the words that he just about utters here, he's about to utter, as quite a dissonance, quite a, almost a dig against his family, which it, it really isn't ultimately. But they would have said, he's not honoring his family. Look what he says. Who are my mother and my brothers? As though they're not the most important people in his life. You could infer that from that comment. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mothers and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Quite an audacious statement. It's, you sense the volatility of the atmosphere, the excitement, the wonderment, the sarcasm, all of these things colliding around Jesus and his disciples. Well, that's our text today. We'll look at this in, over this week and next. And today I want to speak primarily to us about how to face rejection in life because Jesus faced it for us in a way that we can't really begin to fully fathom. But let's just look at a message here first that has an introduction that serves the purpose of getting us back into this text. It was a week ago today at the Sunday afternoon prayer time uh, that only a very small group of us gathered. And I'm tempted as a pastor at times to feel discouraged uh, when we don't have numbers. Numbers mean a lot to us, but they sometimes mean more than they should. We were small in number. And yet, as we sat down together, the three of us, I even brought these with me up here this morning, we started going through all of the various prayer items that came to us from last Sunday's services, and we had plenty to do. We had plenty of reason to have our prayer meeting, even though there were only three of us last week. And I have to tell you this, and this is just a, an encouragement to, to my heart, and I hope it is to you. As we spent that time in prayer, it went by quickly. We just kept our commitment to simply pray for those people that have given us things to pray about. The prayer meeting, though small, ended with a great sense of joy in my heart. It felt like the perfect use of my time, and I was so grateful that I didn't call the meeting early, that we didn't just go home and say, oh, we don't need to meet today. It's so easy to do less than our best in prayer, isn't it? The simple truth is this. When we come together as God's family to pray, whether we're few or whether we're many, we find help in, in that hour of need. We find hope in it. God meets us in that. And isn't it true that you and I need God, friends, to be working in our hearts, in the hearts of people we love, in the heart of this nation? And think about this. The consequences of not praying as individuals or as a church, as couples, the consequences of not praying, they are not attractive. Prayer accomplishes things in our lives that nothing else can and will. It does our souls good to pray. And I remind you of that invitation that you and I have to pray regularly. With this encouragement, it's a reminder of something I hope that you already take for granted. Whenever you come to prayer, whether it's just you or one or two or a whole group of people, God always receives you. He never gives you the busy signal. He never says, oh, you haven't prayed in a while. I don't want to hear from you today. He never does that. He always listens. He doesn't reject us. That's a great comfort because in this life, people will not give us the time of day often. People that we want to be with or maybe spend time with or get to know. People will reject us, but the Lord never will. And I want to encourage you today with that uh, idea that though the world and people and even sometimes people close to us leave us feeling the pain of rejection or neglect. Perhaps it's neglect, not full-scale rejection. God never does that to you. He never does that to me. Hebrews 13.5 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. We're reminded that Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So when you feel alone as a believer, remember you're not. You're not an orphan, though you might feel like it. You're not one. God's word declares differently. 
You know, nobody else, look at that verse again, nobody in this life will ever make a greater, a greater commitment to you than that. Not even a, a, a loving spouse can make and keep that level of commitment for eternity, but God has made that commitment to you in Christ, personally. He has made that level of commitment to you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Psalm 27.10 comes to mind. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me, wrote the psalmist. This last week I learned a, a true story about a man named David. His father abandoned the family when David was 10 years old. And that's not uncommon these days. A lot of fathers don't stick around for 10 years, as David's did. But he was abandoned at age 10 by his father. And then to make matters worse, three years later, at 13 years old, when he's just becoming a young man, his mother forced him to leave the home. How would you face such rejection as that? 13 years old and no, no close family. The family that you were born into has really let you figure life out on your own at that very tender age. Thankfully, David's story didn't end there. There was a pastor and, a, and his wife who took him in. And he moved in. David moved in with them, and they showed him the reality of that verse that's on the screen in front of you. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. They lived that truth of Scripture out in front of him, and it transformed his life. His life embraced faith in Christ. It flourished. He grew into adulthood. He could say with conviction that God is a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of widows. This is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. This is our God. David grew up to become a man of influence. And wouldn't you know it, his career path wound up being a seminary president of a leading school here in the States. That's incredible when you think about his tough beginnings. Shows you the redemptiveness of God, the ever-present help of God in trouble. It also shows you the reality of what happens when believers act on the truth of God's word when they apply it. They say, God, you're a father to the fatherless. We have a family. We can welcome this person into our home. We can show them who you are in a living and active way. See, this family that took David in didn't just quote a scripture to him, did they? They knew that scripture, Psalm 2710. They knew Psalm 68, 5 and 6, but they acted on what they knew. They incorporated that truth into their lives. It became very tangible, their show of love to this young man, David, and his life turned around in an incredible way because of it. And so here's where I'm headed with all of this, in case you're wondering. When things don't go well in life, people often ask, where is God? Where is God? Where is God when this trouble happened in my life, when this relationship didn't materialize or it soured, when, when I didn't get the job I wanted, when this or that happened? And we all have those questions. But I think there's a greater question that we need to ask ourselves as believers. Are we with him? He is with us. With fondness, Christians affirm the name Emmanuel from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which predicts and names the Messiah with one of his many beautiful names. It says, his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God has come to us in person. We have all of us, each of us has an appointment with Jesus Christ, and with eyes of faith we can yield our lives to him and trust him to forgive us our sins, and we begin this lifelong relationship with him. He is with us. 
no matter, friend, what our circumstances tell us, even if they tell us something different. The real question is, are we with him? Are we with him? So I want to just take that apart a little bit here today. Jesus said to his disciples, all of them except the one who betrayed him, Judas, he said near the end of his ministry, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. They were with him, weren't they? You know, the calling of the disciples that, you, that we read about last week in Mark 3, the part that Pastor Barry looked at, those disciples, they got connected to Jesus on a heart level. You and I know from observation, maybe from experience, when two people get married, they sometimes grow apart. They don't naturally stay close unless they work at it, right? Unless they, they work through the troubles, the trials, the issues of life. Without that, they don't stay close. What if these disciples that Jesus named and called as they went back into Capernaum that day and felt the hubbub of the furor around Jesus and the most uh, respected religious leaders who were there on that site that day in Capernaum who came up from, from Jerusalem laid all these charges against Jesus and said, oh, he, the works he's doing are, are from the evil one, they're from the devil. And then you'd have heard Jesus hit him, hit him with a counterpoint and what would, you, what would you have done if you were one of those disciples? Who am I going to believe here? Who am I going to go with? These disciples were with Jesus. They stayed with him. Now, not perfectly, but they grew with him in their trust, in their understanding, through their misunderstandings. Uh, they stayed with him. Here's my quick application. Are we staying with Jesus during the trials, the difficulties that surround us in our personal lives? Or are we kind of leaving him off to the side and saying, I don't know where he's at. I don't know. God, where are you? Are you here for me? What happened? Why did this happen in my life? Are you staying close to Jesus? Because these people did. And he tells them at the end of his ministry, you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me. And I want to help you today and challenge you to think about the need for all of us to persevere, to persevere with Jesus. Mark 3.14 it says he appointed 12 so that they would be with him. Now, don't just leave it there in the first century. You know something? He appointed you. You have an appointment with Jesus to know him. You don't have their calling. You, don't, you have different gifts than they did, so I'm not making that kind of a leap from the New Testament to you personally, but there's a transferable principle. Every Christian has a personal appointment with Jesus to know him to use his or her gifts to follow him lifelong through, to be with him. Easier said than done, because there's going to be rejection that we're going to face and encounter because of him, because of following Jesus. Not everybody will understand your passion. Not everybody will understand your priorities of faith. There are people probably in your world or your life right now who say to you, why do you go to church on Sunday? They don't know why in the world you would give time, your time to do this or to go to a study and to lead a study, or to, to give money to Christian causes. Now, some would, but many people don't understand why we do what we do, and that's okay, as long as we see the need to persevere, to stay with Jesus. And I hope and pray that we all will have the humility to admit that we will never outgrow our need for him, our need for Jesus. You'll never outgrow your need of him, to pray to him, to trust him, to listen to his word. In fact, 
that's a quick point. You might feel like I'm giving you two messages in one here today. Maybe I am. As I look at my notes today, it seems like I've kind of got two messages wrapped up in one here. So bear with me. It's kind of a lot of stuff, but I hope it's just what we need today. Mark 3.35, Jesus appeals to people to not just look at him, observe him, but to listen to his word, to do what he says. He told his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my teaching. One of the ways you and I can determine whether or not we're growing in our life with Christ is are we listening to his teaching? Are we applying it? When I say listen, I don't mean just hearing and not really doing, but bringing those together. Because the Bible says we are not to be just listeners or hearers only, but doers of God's word. It's important for us to keep incorporating the word of God in our personal life. Elsewhere in scripture, Jesus teaches a very vital principle. What we have can be lost if we don't use it. Now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I don't think Scripture teaches that, personally. I believe that it teaches the perseverance of the soul, that uh, the security of the believer is there in Scripture. We can rely on that. But fruitfulness, fruitfulness, effectiveness, joy in following Jesus is quite conditional. It's conditional upon our obedience and our continuance in the words of Jesus. And our relationship with Jesus doesn't just grow without our participation, without involvement. Jesus said, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, will be taken from them. Let me step back from his spiritual truth to an everyday kind of real-world example that we might find even easier to understand so we can see what the, what the principle is that he's giving us. Some of you would recognize the name of the, the world-famous pianist, Van Cliburn. He once took a few years off from performing concerts. And then he decided, as he was interviewed on a show, one of these morning shows, it was Good Morning America uh, some years ago, he was being interviewed. And the person interviewing asked him what his future plans were. And he said, you know, I've been giving serious consideration to going back on the concert circuit. I've been off for several years. And so the interviewer asked the next excellent question and said, well, what would that take? for you to walk in there and start doing the concerts again that you once did. It was quite a comment that he made. Van Cliburn said, that will require me in order to reach that level of playing that I once had, practicing between eight and 10 hours a day for the next two years. I've lost too much by not doing it, by not engaging my skills, by not playing. There, if, if, in other words, he said, if, if you don't use what you have, you, you lose it. You don't stay where you are. You regress. Now, there's a spiritual principle that Jesus taught very clearly to his disciples. He said, hold on to what you know and apply it. Unless you're incorporating truth in your life as I'm giving it to you, you're going to lose what you think you have. You're not going to stay where you were. You're actually going to regress. And my appeal to most of us, if not all of us here who are in church, we're church folk, right? Is that we don't kid ourselves or deceive ourselves, frankly, by thinking that just being here alone is making us grow spiritually. It's, it can, if, if in your heart of hearts, you're responding to Jesus. You're letting his word find its way in your heart, and you're applying it to your life. James 1.22 says, my brothers, let us not only be hearers of God's word, but doers lest we deceive ourselves. 
Let's bring it in. Let's apply it. Let's not just talk about, give lip service to our, our Christianity. Let's engage the words of Scripture. Let's learn to pray. Let's, let's find out what, what does radical giving look like. What does forgiveness really mean in my life? What did Jesus really teach me? Am I applying that? It's so important, friends, to you and to me, that as we meet with God in the Scriptures, that we say, this is his word, and I need to incorporate it, not just read it, to, to understand it in an academic set setting alone. That's not enough. It's not enough. And so I encourage you today to, to take God's word seriously in your life, to be not just ingesting it, but incorporating it so that you get more understanding. Do you want a rich relationship with God? Do you really want to know the Bible? Well, apply it, and you'll get a greater and a deeper understanding of what it is. Now, if your heart says, yes, I'm in, I get that. I want to be a growing man or woman or son or daughter of God. I get that. Then I want to say this. Get ready to be misunderstood. Because the Bible itself is quite countercultural. It's going to make changes in your life, some that not everybody's going to like. It's going to make you different. It's going to make you stand out at times. You're going to be at odds with certain things that people don't even have an issue with. The life devoted to Jesus will at times be misunderstood. And as this culture goes further and further and further away from the truth of God's word, I think we are going to, along with it, be more and more and more frequently misunderstood. Now that's okay, because Jesus faced more rejection than you and I will ever face. If we're rejected for the right reasons, not because we're doing stupid things that are wrong, but if we're rejected for doing godly things and for becoming more like Jesus, that's okay. In fact, Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. He said that to his own disciples. It's good to go along, to get along where we can, but we've got to be able to be, to be who we are in Christ and to be unafraid. And so I want to give you quickly from the text in front of us here some applications here. So there's, again, a lot in this message, but let's, we'll move through this next part fairly quickly. We learn to manage misunderstanding. The first thing you do, three short applications before I get to some later points, and these are from credit from Chuck Swindoll. He says, face it, face it. The disciples that were with Jesus there in Mark 3, they had to face those, those, those rejection uh, overtures with Jesus, didn't they? They had to face it. Swindoll says, realize that not all of your family members or friends who don't know Christ will be able to understand your devotion to him. In fact, they will often remain very concerned about you. <laughs> They'll try to figure you out, out of genuine but misguided love for you. They'll plead their case, trying to win you away from the, quote, cult that you've joined. Or they'll try to soften your extremism. You need to recognize the fact that those who have not experienced new birth in Christ can only come so far in understanding the spiritual relationships that you now experience. So face it. Just face it. Misunderstanding is part of the deal of following Jesus and living a, a life that follows him well. Accepting it. Don't fight it. Don't try to force your perspectives, your priorities, and your spiritual pursuits upon them. You can't force them into believing or even accepting your own convictions. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You're the believer, they're not. Accept the fact that until the Lord turns their hearts around, they won't grasp the joy, the zeal, the delight, and the motivation that you have for life. There's a lot of freedom in that. Just accepting, being willing to accept people that may not understand you, and you don't have to convince them to understand you. You just love them. 
He says, they won't understand your new Christian friends and your new spiritual family. They may even begin to be a little jealous of the new company you keep. Their attitude towards you and your faith is out of your control. You can't change it. Accept it. And then lastly, he says, adjust to it. Live your faith. Pray for the faithless. Be ready to share Christ with them when the moment is right, but don't do things to push them away. Don't go out of your way to alienate them with a barrage of spiritual emails, gospel-embedded text messages, constant invitations to church events, or hidden gospel tracts under their pillows or taped to their bathroom mirrors. I don't know anybody that's going to do that. Well, some of us think about it. Don't force mealtime prayers on them. Embrace the new reality that you now live with genuine commitments to both your natural family and the supernatural family of God. Adjust to it. Those were choices the disciples had to make, the first disciples, and we have to keep making the same ones. And I'm going to tell you this, if you're going to stand strong in the face of rejection in this world, settle in your mind exactly who Jesus is. Now we're going to come into the meat, really, of this passage that we've opened up in front of us today. The perceptions of those around Jesus were misperceptions. They were misunderstandings. How was Jesus misunderstood? This is C.S. Lewis's trilemma, if you're familiar with that. But people uh, looked at Jesus in three primary ways. The first one here that uh, we're identifying, and it's from the text. It's biblical. It's a biblical point, is that some people looked at Jesus simply as a liar, The last verse of the text in front of us that I looked at with you last time I preached a couple of weeks ago was verse 6. So let's go back briefly to verse 6 in this chapter. It was, remember, the healing of, uh, of a man with the withered hand. He had a handicapped hand, and Jesus healed him. Verse 6, Mark 3, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, a secular group of Jews. So you had the the religious Jews and the secular Jews forming an alliance, very unlikely alliance, strange bedfellows. They came together to oppose Jesus, not just oppose him. It says how to destroy him. They looked at Jesus. Why did they want to do that? Because they looked at him as a liar. Now jump down to verse 23 of the same chapter. Verse 23 of the same chapter. And this is, they, they thought Jesus was lying. He called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. He was answering their charge, which you see in verse 22. The scribes, part of the religious establishment, came down from Jerusalem and were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul, another name for the devil. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Well, it was nonsensical. But I've said it here often, I'll say it again. What people don't understand, they tend to misunderstand. When people looked at Jesus and his miracles and his fulfillment of prophecy, he wasn't measuring up to their expectations of what the Messiah would be like. So instead of understanding him and giving him the benefit of a doubt and believing in the miracles, which he said, if you don't believe in me, but at least believe in the miracles, instead they misunderstood, and so they attributed the miracles to the evil one. They said, you're a liar. You're not the Messiah. You're an imposter. Now, nothing's changed since Jesus came. There are many people today who would say the same thing. You could find them everywhere. People who would say, well, Jesus was a person of history, but he was an imposter. There's no way he could be the Messiah. And so if you're going to be a strong believer, get ready to face that here and there, now and then. People with an atheistic mindset who says, well, even if Jesus was a person of history, he was not who he claimed to be. And they're going to to look at him as a liar. 
the Herodians did, the religious leaders did, people today still do. In fact, I found this really interesting as I was working on the message this last week. If, you don't have to turn with me here, but in Acts chapter 15, you have the Council of Jerusalem. So this is after Jesus has ascended to heaven. And you have a number of religious leaders who came to faith in Jesus. Acts 15.5 says some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, so they, some of those guys became believers. That's great news. But they seem to really have a tough time focusing on a relationship with God through Christ. They kept falling back into rules. Rules. Because it says the Pharisees stood up and said, now these were believing Pharisees, they said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses as Christians. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows your heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. The gospel isn't just for the Jew. He said it's for the Gentile. It's for the whole world. Here's the key verse now, verse 10. Now, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, he says. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So the misunderstandings continued into the first century. And then later, you had church councils that helped to clarify the theology that Jesus was teaching and it's a great subject, of course, in itself. It, but some people, rather than looking at Jesus just as a liar, they, some said, well, he's just crazy. I use the word lunatic because that's the word that C.S. Lewis uses in his trilemma. Some of Jesus' own friends thought that. Look with me at that text. I'm moving on to that second point of the trilemma there. Verses 20 through 21. We're looking at this uh, in, in a few uh, out-of-order sequences here. But verse... Uh, verse 20 says he went home, Capernaum. Now he's from Nazareth, but they're in Capernaum. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. That can be interpreted in a couple of ways into English. The word insane is, is a fair translation. He's crazy. We don't understand why he's saying what he's saying. We don't know what he's doing, and they're trying to bring him in. And the Greek word there is is existimi, or existimai, and it means losing one's mind to be beside oneself or to be insane. People of Jesus' own blood, family, and, and associates, people who knew him from Nazareth, said, he's lost his senses. They don't understand him. We don't understand him. But here's the thing. In reality, the only thing irrational about Jesus was that what is what they had mistakenly concluded about him. They didn't understand that he was the Messiah. They couldn't put it together. Well, then some people get through those obstacles and they say, I don't think he's a liar, and I don't think he's crazy. I think he's who he says he is. I trust most of us here today are in this group. His followers, if we look back at verses 31 to 35 in Mark chapter 3, Jesus' mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him he had a higher allegiance than to his earthly family it was to his heavenly father 
He doesn't go at their summons. Verse 32, and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to, to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my brother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Every one of us here today has to come to our own verdict on who is Jesus. Is he a liar? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he your Lord? And if you're ready to stand on the truth that he is Lord, if you're ready to be with him, be prepared to accept what Jesus tells us there in that verse in John 15. And remember, it's okay to be disliked and criticized, even hated if it's for the right reasons. The truth be told, we need him. We need him. We need him now. Our nation needs him now. Our families need him now. Our relationships need him now. Friends, it's a time to be bold and strong in our faith. Not comfortable Christianity, but readiness to grow, to be pushed out of our comfort zones. Father, we're going to close this service today with just a, a video message that I trust will just remind us of our need, our true and our genuine need. All our hearts, all our strength, with all our minds, we are at your fate May your church arise. Let your church arise. Amen. Please watch this video with me. going to show for us, Luke, or not? We had it set for you. might not. It's a great song that uh, is from Casting Crowns. If we've ever needed you, the time is now. Lord, it's now. And I can't sing it for you. You wouldn't want me to. But I think with that, uh, we'll pause. We won't worry about it for this service, Luke. It's okay. Let's stand for our closing benediction. I've used up the time on the clock anyway, so this is probably a, a blessing. Father, thank you for the summons to know you more. We know that we need you, and I thank you so much that you are so active and willing and ready to receive us at all times to, to let us press into knowing you better through your written word and in prayer times and in fellowship with one another. Help us to be a growing church, not numerically, that's a blessing if it happens, but internally, internally, spiritual growth, Lord. That's our, our first goal because that's your goal that we grow up in Jesus, we grow in that relationship, that rich relationship. Thanks that you meet with us, Lord, in the word. You meet with us in prayer. You meet with us in fellowship. Hold us close. Help us to take new steps this week of growing with you. We need you now. It's in Jesus' name I pray.
and everyone said, Amen. Thank you so much for being with us.